Chasing Cosby contains descriptions of violence, sexual content, and language that is not suitable for every audience. Please be advised. It's January 2015. Bill Cosby's on his far-from-finished comedy tour. The next stop takes him to Andrea Constant's home country, Canada. Hey, man, doesn't it bother you that your wife repeats whatever the machine says? He said, what machine? At this point in her story, the 77-year-old comedian's been accused of sexual assault or attempted sexual assault by a lot of women. Bill Cosby has released several paper statements with the tagline, far from finished, and that he believes his career is not over. There is no mention of the more than two dozen women or their accusations. Just an upbeat, energetic Cosby promoting his upcoming comedy performance in several cities. Bill Cosby promises his Canadian fans what he calls the show of their life. Outside a venue in London, Ontario, a small crowd braves the cold and snow to protest Cosby's show. How dare you go in there? Protesters shouted down the nearly 3,000 ticket holders who came to see Bill Cosby despite the sexual assault allegations against him. Let him do his time. They hand out flyers that list the names of women who've accused Cosby of sexual assault. These women are telling the truth. He has to be held accountable. They need a voice, they need an apology. In Kitchener, Ontario, the mayor boycotts Cosby's show at a venue called Center in the Square. Here in Ontario, a lot of people are looking at the accused man in this and saying they simply cannot show up to a show that he would perform. All of this is playing out in front of a venue that says it has a contract with Bill Cosby and a promoter, and it simply can't afford the kind of litigation that would take place if the show did not go on here. Cosby's staff originally invited cameras inside to record the event, but at the last minute, the venue banned all videotaping. And so, the show goes on. But in Hollywood, prominent figures in the comedy world are taking note. Via Twitter, Judd Apatow castigates the Canadian venues that host Far From Finished shows. He tweets, do people still find him delightful after 30 accusers? Apatow also shares his take on Cosby on Mark Maron's WTF podcast. I can't be a part of solving that many problems in the world, but this is our neighborhood. Would you like to see him in jail? Oh, I absolutely would like to see him in jail. People who commit these acts should be in prison. I'm not comfortable with him running around the country doing stand-up like nothing's happening. As all this is going on, I'm wondering, are the accusations against Cosby finally going to take hold? Is there nothing that will crack Cosby's pristine image? Or will he skate free once again? The fertility doctor, Jan Karbat, was renowned for getting amazing results. Women who were desperate for children would visit him at his Rotterdam clinic. Many would leave pregnant. But when the clinic closed, rumors circulated about the methods the doctor used to achieve his success. My name's Jenny Kleeman, and I've been investigating what happened in Carbat's clinic. It's the story of a doctor who was determined to create life by any means possible. The Immaculate Deception, a brand new podcast from something else, coming on March 18th, wherever you get your podcasts. From the Los Angeles Times, I'm Nikki Wisensee Egan, and this is Chasing Cosby. Episode 4. He didn't give me a choice. 
Despite all the protests, the calls to cancel shows, and the growing number of sexual assault allegations against him, Cosby is defiant. Before a sold-out show in Florida, he tells a reporter, I know people are tired of me not saying anything, but a guy doesn't have to answer to innuendos. People should fact check. He's put out a statement saying he wants people to show up and enjoy his show, but he does not want them interacting with any protesters who might show up or anybody who might heckle him inside when he begins his comedy routine. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bill Cosby. Happy to have all of you here. From my perspective, things aren't as free and easy for Cosby now as they had been in 2005. In 2015, there's tons of national media coverage after one of Cosby's Ontario shows. The comedian's wearing his Hello Friends hoodie at the show, a reference to the way his late son Ennis greeted people before he was shot changing a flat tire near Bel Air, California. And the most talked about line of the night, a woman in the crowd told Cosby she needed a drink. He then told her, be careful about drinking around me. For a moment, there's silence in the audience. Then someone calls Cosby a rapist. No, 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 stop. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Cosby had done his be careful drinking around me bit on stage in 2005. I'd written about it, but my story was pretty much ignored. This time, news agencies from the Associated Press to the New York Times to CNN cover it. In March 2015, Cosby releases a video message to his fans. He's in fuchsia pajamas and a tan striped chair, talking on a white rotary phone and assuring a fan that the show will go on. Yes, I'm going to be in Wheeling, West Virginia, Capitol Music Hall. Eight o'clock show, that's right. You know I'll be hilarious. Can't wait. Cosby still has his defenders, despite the 40-some women who'd come forward with assault allegations. Like Felicia Rashad, who played Claire Huxtable, the witty, beautiful, no-nonsense matriarch and wife to Cliff on The Cosby Show. Here she is on ABC News. He's a genius. He is generous. He's kind, he's inclusive. What has happened is declaration in the media of guilt without proof. Earlier this week, her remarks about the women who have come forward created a firestorm. You were quoted online as saying, forget those women. And that was a misquote. And that is not what I said. What I said is this is not about the women. This is about something else. This is about the obliteration of legacy. Because some people might think that it was dismissive. I am a woman. I am a woman. I would never say such a thing. And the comedian's diehard fans, they keep coming. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. The last stop of the Far From Finish tour is in Atlanta at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. There's a protest against Cosby outside. Your sister, we believe the women! We believe the women! We believe the women! We believe the women! Lawyer Gloria Allred is here. 
Mr. Cosby was putting on his comedy show, Far From Finished, despite the numerous allegations against him. They didn't think that what they alleged had happened to them was a joke. They did not appreciate his going on this tour, making money from the fact of increased attention to him, and they wanted to protest against it. At some point, Allred is given a ticket to Cosby's show, so she tries to go inside. As I approached the theater, there was someone standing there with a clipboard, and she said, may I see your ticket? So I showed it to her, and she said, what's your name? I told her. And then she looked at her clipboard and she said, oh, sorry, you're going to need to go through this door. I walk into that other door. The security officer, he said, Ms. Allred, your name is on a list, so we're sorry to inform you, you can't go in. Allred's starting to get annoyed. She has a ticket, so why can't she use it to get into the show? You are not going to be allowed to enter the the convention center tonight. I said, oh, really? Have I committed a crime? What crime am I charged with? Or why is it I can't go in? He said, you're just on a list of people who can't go in. I said, even though I have a ticket? Yes. I said, and what is going to happen, sir, if I try to go in? And in that case, if you refuse to leave after being criminal trespass, a law enforcement officer will come and speak with you and ask you to kindly leave the premises. Well, if I decide to go in and you thought I was trespassing, then what would happen? He said, well, then you'd be arrested. After a little back and forth with him, I said, by the way, am I being recorded? Is this conversation being recorded? He said, yes, it is. Well, that was fine with me because I was recording him, too. Allred ends up suing the Cobb Center for not letting her in. Now anyone with a ticket can enter the venue. Lily Bernard, who, as we heard in the last episode, played Mrs. Minifield on The Cosby Show, is at today's protest, too. Lily Bernard, who spoke earlier in the day, said she's now just one of the many women accusing Cosby of rape and harassment. Bernard choked back tears as she stood next to famed attorney Gloria Allred. It took me 23 years to shed the fear that resulted from Bill Cosby drugging me, raping me, and threatening me. If I were to remain silent to the public, I would be enabling Bill Cosby's criminal lifestyle. I fought with my sisters for so many years to try to help justice be served for Andrea Constant, for other survivors of rape, to shift society towards believing women. So that's why I get really emotional, because like I'm a, I'm a Cuban immigrant, you know? So I don't take for granted my freedom. I don't take for granted the power of my voice and the power of my vote. Another woman at today's protest is Jennifer Kaya Thompson. She was Jane Doe number two in Andrea's civil suit. Jennifer's tall with beautiful cafe au lait skin and curly black hair. She grew up in Maryland and began modeling at age 15. I graduated high school year early. wanted to go scout agencies in Manhattan. That's where I heard everything was going on. In New York City, Jennifer signs a modeling contract with an agency called Faces. Sue Turney owns Faces and sends Jennifer to the set of The Cosby Show. I remember walking in the door, going to the front desk on the left, being taken back to meet him. And I remember I had tears in my eyes. I was just done. And I'd grown up listening to his albums, you know. um, He was like a a mini-god. At this time, Jennifer is 17 and Cosby is 51. Jennifer remembers the comedian asking if she has a boyfriend, as that could get in the way of her career. He also gives her a pair of Nikes so she can stay in shape. 
He called my mom saying, I'm going to help her. I'm going to take care of her. You know, she's got talent. We want to do things, blah, blah. Jennifer's parents want to believe Cosby. Back in 1988, he's still America's dad. Two weeks later, mom and dad got in the van. We moved up to New York. We did eat dinner at his house, the Brownstone. I remember he and my father talking a lot about African-American music and places um, to go hear jazz and things. I did feel safe with him, and I definitely looked up to him as like a, a father figure. Jennifer moves into a New York City apartment with four other models. At first, her relationship with Cosby is platonic. He gets Jennifer a small role on The Cosby Show. You can see her walking to her locker in the episode about Theo's prom. But one day, everything changes when Cosby starts massaging her shoulders and arms. That makes her uncomfortable. She withdraws from him, eventually leaving her modeling career behind and moving back to Maryland. When Cosby invites her to his brownstone to talk, Jennifer wants some closure, so she goes. But she says during this visit, Cosby pressures her to participate in sexual acts against her will. Jennifer ends up giving in to this very powerful man. He just pointed to a bottle of Jergens, told me to pick it up, and um, I proceeded to give him a handjob. Cosby doesn't deny this incident occurred, but he says it was consensual. Here's the way he describes it in his deposition. She performed a sexual act with her hand, and I had an orgasm. Afterward, according to Jennifer, Cosby offers to cover her tuition at Spelman College. She doesn't take him up on the offer. In the years since, Jennifer's been in and out of therapy, trying to make sense of it all. Remember Frank Scotty? He's the former NBC facilities manager we heard from in the last episode. Scotty remembers giving money orders to many teenage models the comedian got to know. We would later learn that Sue Charney's modeling agency would send up to six young models a week to the Cosby Show set, including Jennifer. Back to 2015. Things are pretty quiet for Cosby when... A new firestorm surrounds Bill Cosby, but this time it's because of his own words and not the accusations of others. Cosby's confessions about drugs, sex, and young women in newly released documents are eye-opening and leave many feeling betrayed. A court reporter mistakenly thinks Bill Cosby's deposition, the one he's given under oath to Andrea Constance's lawyers before they settled her civil suit back in 2005, has been unsealed. The entire deposition is now a matter of public record and the contents are explosive. Especially Cosby's admissions about drugging women he wanted to have sex with and having affairs with women outside of his marriage with Camille. The sweeping deposition, taken over a four-day period at a Philadelphia hotel in 2005, describes Cosby's sexual encounters with at least five women, fueling an exploding scandal. Cosby also said that he didn't take quaaludes himself for the same reason that he doesn't drink alcohol because it makes him sleepy. But he says that he gave quaaludes to other people very much in the same way that you might offer someone a drink. In his testimony, Cosby described quaaludes as the drug young people were using to party, saying, I wanted to have them just in case. When asked whether a different woman from Constand was in a position to give consent to sex after he gave her quaaludes in 1976, Cosby said, I don't know. In the deposition, Cosby says the quaaludes came from an L.A. doctor named Leroy Amar. Amar's dead now, but he was the gynecologist who introduced Cosby to Tamara Green, who we heard from in episode two. Cosby testified he acquired quaaludes with the intent of giving them to young women with whom he wanted to have sex. Predators use drugs because 
it works. It works in terms of getting the power and the control and the sex from a person who otherwise may or may not comply. That's Trinka Parada. She's an expert on drug-facilitated sexual assaults. Quaaludes and most of the drugs with alcohol, it's going to intensify the effects. So instead of one drink, two drinks, three drinks, it's like taking six at once. It would impair you that much faster and that much more deeply. It would impair your ability overall to function and to be in control. But it also works in that it does erase evidence, it erases memory, so that's frightening. Parada says it's potentially dangerous to drug someone without their knowledge or consent. One day in 1965, Sunny Wells meets Bill Cosby on the Paramount lot, where her mom works and I Spy is being filmed. Sunny is a 17-year-old singer and dancer. Cosby invites her to his favorite jazz club in L.A. called Shelley's Manhole. Sunny goes to the club, but she's underage, so she orders a diet soda. Before she knows it, the club's owner has sent over a bottle of champagne. I can remember the shape of the champagne glasses. And I said, if you see, I can't drink this. I don't drink. And he said, Dad, just take a few sips. I drank a few sips, probably half the glass. And almost immediately, pretty much passed out because I don't remember anything until the next day. And I woke up naked. I was a virgin, and so he um, took my virginity. He didn't give me a choice to choose of who I wanted to give myself to. I was the first victim that we know of his And I am still angry. I will never, ever forgive him. We sent an email to Cosby's spokesman asking for a response to the details in Sonny's story, but he declined to comment. Certain drugs also have the power to significantly reduce someone's ability to fight back. Just ask Stacey Pinkerton. She's a 21-year-old stewardess when she first meets Cosby on one of her flights. The comedian stays in touch with her, and even gets her a role as an extra on The Cosby Show. Then one night in Chicago in 1986, she says Cosby drugs and assaults her. I knew that I could not get away. I had no strength to push him off. He forced me on the bed, and he was right on top of me, two inches from my face, when I went unconscious. Shortly after the incident, Stacy tells her boyfriend and roommate what happened with Cosby. They confirmed how distraught she was. Stacy's too terrified of Cosby to report the assault, eventually leaving the U.S. to live in Spain. I had an opportunity to go to Spain, and I went and didn't know anyone there, didn't speak the language, and just up and left. And I thought, there I don't have to see him on television. I don't have to see those commercials. I don't have to ever, ever worry about that again, and that was my way of healing. We sent an email to Cosby's spokesman asking for a response to the details in Stacy's story, but he declined to comment. In his deposition, Cosby also answers questions about how he meets Therese Seregnes in the 1970s. She was Jane Doe number 10 in Andrea's civil suit. Back then, Therese is in her late teens and living with her family in Las Vegas across the street from the Hilton. I was in the gift shop of the Hilton Hotel, and I was standing by the counter with my sister. And behind me, I felt an arm come around, and I heard someone say, 
Will you marry me? That arm? It belongs to Bill Cosby. He's performing that night at the hotel. He asked me if I wanted to go see the show. My mom said I could go to the show, so I went by myself, and he was amazing. They weren't angry. If you're newlyweds, you get, well, why is he sitting in the car? <laughs> Therese is beautiful, slim and petite with shoulder-length auburn hair and brown eyes. When I went back to the green room, there were already people there, and I was sitting in, in like, the left-end corner. I was intimidated. My next memory is Bill Cosby coming up in front of me and standing above me, and he held out his hand, and there was two large white pills in it, and he said, take these. I was always an obedient person. I went to Catholic school. If you didn't do what they said, they would hit me. This was an authority figure. This was Bill Cosby. I didn't feel like I had any choice. Therese says the next thing she knows, she's in front of a large vanity mirror in the green room, bent over. Bill Cosby's having sex with her from behind. And the reason I know that is I looked in the mirror and I saw what was happening to me. So I just felt powerless. I felt drugged. I felt like I couldn't do anything. I just felt stuck. I don't know how I got home. I was in danger being in the state that I was in. Bill Cosby made me feel like I was worthless. He did what he did. And basically, I, I feel like I've carried that my whole life. Cosby confirms most of the details of this encounter in his deposition, but says it was consensual. When that deposition came out, I was shocked. He said what he did. He admitted what he did. He specifically mentioned my name. It specifically mentioned he had given me, with his words, two quaaludes. In the deposition, Cosby's demeanor appearing almost casual to Constan's attorney, who remarked, I think you're making light of a very serious situation. Cosby replying, that may very well be. Now that the deposition's public, even Cosby's staunchest defenders like Jill Scott and Whoopi Goldberg are having a hard time ignoring the truth. My heart did not want to believe anything negative about someone I love and admire and respect. But my mind is still present and was like... <sighs> Damn it. There's no way around this. This looks bad. It smells bad. It tastes bad. This, this is bad. I got to say, all of the information that's out there kind of points to guilt. Every woman who does come through should be able to take her accuser to court and make him prove that he's innocent. Even President Barack Obama weighs in during a press conference at the White House in 2015. If you give a woman, or a man for that matter, without uh, his or her knowledge, a drug, and then have sex with that person without consent, that's rape. I think this country, any civilized country, should have no tolerance for rape. In the summer of 2015, the next chapter in the Bill Cosby saga unfolds. The Montgomery County, Pennsylvania DA quietly reopens its 2005 investigation into Cosby. I'd just taken a long hike when I saw the Philadelphia Inquirer headline, Time Hasn't Run Out on Possible Charges Against Cosby in PA. I was shocked. 
Bruce Castor, you'll remember from episode one, was the DA who decided not to file criminal charges against Cosby in 2005 due to insufficient evidence. Had Cosby's deposition changed things? Or was it the 50-plus women who'd come forward with their own assault allegations? I was also amazed to learn the statute of limitations on Andrea Constant's allegations wouldn't expire until January 2016. Bruce Castor at this time is in a contentious race to get his old job back as Montgomery County DA. He's running against Kevin Steele, who was trying to make the case to voters through campaign ads that Castor botched the Cosby case back in 2005. A former DA who refused to prosecute Bill Cosby. Castor said, we don't charge people for making a mistake or doing something foolish. Many more victims came forward and Castor admitted he could have used their testimony against Cosby. But Castor didn't even try. Bruce Castor was not looking out for the victims. In November, Kevin Steele beats Castor and becomes the new Montgomery County DA. Now it's his job to decide whether or not to press criminal charges against Bill Cosby. Kevin Steele has declared victory in the race for DA in Montgomery County. He ran against former DA Bruce Castor, reporting live from King of Prussia, Walter Perez, Channel 6 Action News. Kristen Fedden, a prosecutor in Steele's office, has just been to Canada to talk to Andrea. She was in a very different state. It wasn't as if it was exploding all over again. But it was still an explosion because it was something where we were trying to ask, hey, would you be willing to testify if we do charge this case? And by the way, we may not charge this case, but can you sit down with me and recount for you a very traumatic experience and answer certain questions that could come up so that when we decide whether or not we're going to prosecute this case, we can have a full evidentiary plate to make that decision. Andrea has tried to move on. She's now working as a massage therapist in Toronto but she's ready to testify if the DA decides to press criminal charges against Cosby. I didn't want to run away from it. I think a natural instinct sometimes is to try to distract yourself and turn away, but I just couldn't do that. And I needed to really hunker down and find my courage. I did feel that I could be of service and it was important for me to follow through and do the right thing share my truth and share the truth about everything that I possibly could and be as transparent as I possibly could. I wasn't scared anymore. I was ready to not only do the right thing, but to not run away from what was knocking at my door. Which brings us to the end of December 2015, a couple weeks from when the statute of limitations will expire on Andrea's assault allegations. I find myself wondering if the DA's office will once again let Andrea down. Then, on December 29, 2015, I get a tip in the form of a text. The wording is cryptic, but I know exactly what it means. I confirm the tip with a secondary source and write late into the night. Coming up on the next episode of Chasing Cosby, Charges today are filed as a result of new information that came to light in July of 2015. There's no possible way you can understand how long it takes to be able to have courage to say, I want to do something about it. Day one, Bill Cosby faces three charges of aggravated indecent assault. Bill Cosby's defense team argued that Andrea Constant repeatedly lied. My job was to tell the truth. There were so many people in that room who were crying. 
And there was Andrea, hugging these people, telling them it was going to be okay, telling them that she had faith. Chasing Cosby is reported and hosted by me, Nikki Wisensee Egan. It's a Los Angeles Times podcast and a production of LA Times Studios and Herzog and Company. Our producer is Alexandra Zaslow. Our audio engineers are Angus Spottiswood, Pete Ciarto, Brett Whitlow, Mike Heflin, and Eric Montgomery. Production help from Paige Heimson, Aaron Sands, and Robert Glenn Smith. The original music you heard in this podcast was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Our sound design is by Snap Sound. Thanks to everyone who granted us access to their archives. You can find the list at latimes.com slash Chasing Cosby. Chasing Cosby is executive produced by Abby Fentress Swanson for the Los Angeles Times, Mark Herzog and Andy Beckerman for Herzog and Company, and me, Nikki Wisensee Egan. If you're the victim of sexual assault or know someone who is, you can get help by calling the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. 